Good morning, welcome to our worship service here at Palmetto. We are thrilled that you've gathered together to worship our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, with us. We're especially thankful that you're here. If you're a first-time visitor or a guest and you don't typically attend our church, we hope that you feel warmly welcomed and you sense that this is a family meeting. We are a body of believers united to Christ together as one body, one family in the Lord. There's a Connect card in the seat pocket in front of you. We would love to um, establish a long-term relationship with you if you're inclined to fill that out. And you can place it at the welcome table in the back. We also have a gift for you, just a gesture of hospitality. We'd love a chance to give that to you. So um, please give us the chance to greet you, to welcome you this morning. So glad that you're with us. Uh, we've gathered together in God's presence to honor and exalt him. And that's the significance of this gathering. Uh, we are in the presence of the Lord, the temple of the living God being built on that chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here are a call to worship from Psalm 24, a song of ascent. And you can picture pilgrims gathering for worship, ascending the temple mount. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our worship. Our great God, we come into your presence today completely unworthy. Uh, we do not have clean hands and pure hearts apart from the work of your Son and your Spirit by the power of the gospel. We praise you for the gospel that we've been saved by, it, the gospel of our salvation. We want to be the generation who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So be pleased with our worship this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, good morning, church. We're glad to be here together with you guys, and I know we're all looking forward to a day of worship. Today, I get to introduce two full members and 12 watch care members, so it's a blessing that we have a number of people here that want to uh, be part of the family and join and serve. So I'd like to introduce first Dave and Kimberly Dietz. They have the pictures up there, if you guys will stand. They have three kids, Caleb, Andrew, and Rebecca. Dave is the vice president of ministries at the Institute of Biblical Leadership a ministry that we support. He'd like to be involved with the Ministry of Music and as a gift of teaching and administration. Kimberly recently received her RN, congrats, uh, and works as a nurse at Prisma. She's loved to serve in the nursery, worship team, and on the medical response team. Good one to have on that team. Thank you, guys. You may be seated. Then on our Watch Care members, we have Caitlin Ashmore. Where's Caitlin? Caitlin is from Georgia, will finish her degree in English Ed this May. She's hoping to teach in a local public school. She wants you to pray that she finds a job. She's interested in serving with the elementary kids here in the youth group as well as on the worship team. And so welcome, Caitlin. Esther Bain. Esther's up front here. Esther's from Williamsburg, Virginia, is a sophomore in biblical counseling major. She'd like to serve in the nursery or the worship team and choir. Esther, welcome. Nikki de Jesus. There's Nikki's over here. Nikki has a sister here, Maddie. He's also from Virginia. He wants to come as a watch care member 
Uh, he's a junior finance and accounting major. He'd like to serve in the children's ministry or the safety team and coffee team. Thank you, Nikki. Stephen Douse. Stephen, all right. Stephen's from Florence, South Carolina. He's a freshman majoring in interior architecture and design. He plans to get his master's in architecture at Clemson. He'd like to help with the parking or creative arts, photography or videography. So welcome, Stephen. Katie Hill. Where's Katie? There's Katie. Uh, Katie's from Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, she's a junior business administration marketing major, wants to serve on the worship and welcome teams. Welcome, Katie. Paige Johnson. Paige is from Seattle, Washington, studying architecture and design. We have all the designers here. Uh, she would like to serve with the coffee ministry. Thank you, Katie. Paige Johnson. I saw her. Where'd she go? Where? Oh, oh, sorry. That, sorry, sorry, sorry. Silly me. <laughs> Silly me. Kayla Lee. I got my finger in the wrong spot. Kayla Lee. Kayla's from Florence, South Carolina. She's a junior interior architecture and design major. After graduation, she wants to work towards getting her design license with hopes of opening her own business, along with the photography and business on the side. Kaylee, uh, Kaylee wants to serve in the nursery and preschool ministries. Thank you, Kaylee. Lily Lynch. Lily is from Darlington, South Carolina, is a junior counseling major. She also has her cosmetology license and plans to work in a salon after her using and after college using her counseling degree to encourage and disciple women who come into her chair. She wants to serve in the children's ministry and worship team. Welcome, Lily. <coughs> Saul. Saul or Solomon. Saul is from Lexington, South Carolina. He's graduating this spring. Where do you go, by the way? Very, in the very back. There you go. Uh, graduating this spring with a nursing degree, he's, he has his cross-country and track He's on the cross-country and track team at Bob Jones and is a three-time NCAA All-American in that event. He's an usher at school and would like to serve on the ushering team here. We're going to get people to their chairs in record time, <laughs> as well as the children's and youth ministries and parking. Um, Braden Trotter. Where's Braden? Thank you, Braden. Braden's from Georgia. He's a health science major. He's hoping to become a pediatrician who wants to serve in the Wednesday night kids club and on worship team. Welcome, Braden. Two more. Julia. Julia Weigel. Standing here in the middle. Julia's from Michigan and is a sophomore graphic design major. She plays basketball for school and would like to serve on the worship team and in the creative arts ministry. Welcome, Katie. Julie. Sarah Zimmer. Did Sarah slip in? Okay, in the very back, very, very back. Sarah Zimmer lives in Easley and is studying electrical engineering. She plays the guitar and ukulele, would like to serve on the worship team, welcome team, or in the nursery. Welcome to you. All right, all those in favor of inter accepting the two new regular members, full members, and 12 watch care members, smile and say amen. 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 All right, um, I guess that means it's time to sing and do worship this morning, which I am pumped about. Uh, so let's go ahead and stand and sing, and we're going to sing Shout to the North.
this morning with um, our new song of the month, uh, which is a song I know that College Group has begun singing, um, and that's a song called Abide. Um, what, a, what a great song that, that really tells of Jesus's um, desire for us to come to him. Um, all you who are weary and broken, uh, come to me, and, and in, in Christ uh, we find rest. So uh, we're going to sing that truth this morning, and uh, I'm excited uh, to learn this song with you guys.
Thank you guys so much for worshiping. You can be seated. We serve an amazing God, and uh, probably most of us need to re-sing that song many times this week because we were made to depend on God, and yet most of the time, most of us could grow in that area, so it is good to sing that truth. Uh, we want to uh, pray this morning for four specific needs. One just I learned about this morning. Uh, the first one is, um, in terms of our church, we want to pray for our facility, um, our need for improved meeting space, and that certainly is great. God is our great provider, so we need to be asking him to help us to win the facilities battle in his timing. And uh, we've already seen him moving now for years in the buying and selling of property, and I just continue to see him at work, so we want to pray for that. Uh, we like to pray for one of our members each week. This week, we're going to pray for Sherry Ann Neds. And um, we typically will pray for one missionary this week, and uh, that's going to be, we're actually going to pray for two. Uh, one of them is Hander, uh, Hannah Bender with Medical Missions um, Outreach, and want to pray for her. And I do want to clarify, um, because I've gotten some questions, which always, anytime you get questions, you realize, well, I probably didn't communicate clearly. But when we did the budget, we talked about the fact that we weren't supporting Hannah Bender this year. But I should, have, I should have done a better job communicating. She is still our missionary. We are still her sending church. It's just she's working full time at the agreement between her and, and medical missions just to gain some more skills. And so she doesn't need our financial support, but she still needs our prayer support. And she still is going on trips. And we will need to occasionally help her with the cost of some of those trips. So she's just as much of our missionary as she's always been. And she's, she's not costing us as much. Okay, I probably could have said that better. <clears throat> the, Jeff Davis uh, called this morning and asked us to pray. He's had an urgent need that has just come up in, in Uruguay, and so on Wednesday he's going to be taking a trip just to help work with the team there, so we, he asked us to be praying for that, so we want to do that. And then also this morning I get to do a special um, opportunity to give you an update on my trip to Uganda, and um, do I have... Are you guys going to move the slides? Yeah, okay, we're going to do that first. Okay, great. So God provided me an amazing opportunity, and I certainly want to give him credit. Um, this first picture is the team that is primarily from Shepherd's Church in Cary, North Carolina. Um, the team was organized by an organization called Seven Billion Reasons. And uh, the team that's listed here with the, uh, is all the team that was there, plus the hotel staff and our driver. Um, there were really three groups that went. There's a group that actually are on the board of Seven Billion Reasons, and they opened up a school in 2014 in Busia, Uganda. And it now serves kindergartners through seventh grade, a Christian school. And so they went there. This is the building that the, the second group was Carpenters for Christ. So four of the members from that last picture were in uh, Carpenters for Christ. They replaced this, the um, roof on this building. So they have four of these buildings uh, for classroom space, and they did that. And then two of us were teaching. Um, Bert uh, taught on communication all week, and I got to, as this picture shows, uh, teach on um, biblical leadership theology. So what a, what a great opportunity. Um, so that was a 40-hour class, Monday through Friday, that I got to teach. And basically, the, the, and this is then the graduation picture, um, which was a really exciting celebration. Um, they, uh, folks in um, Uganda do a better job celebrating than we do, so we had quite a celebration. The class was made up of seven administrators from the school, 
which was a great opportunity uh, to teach them on what does the scripture teach about how you lead. And then there were 20 pastors or pastor's wives. Um, and so it was an exciting opportunity to me because the need was great. The, the leadership approach that most of the pastors were using was patently unbiblical. It was very controlling and very, um, well, that's enough on that. And then, on, but on top of that, the students were so open to learn. I mean, it was just, it was like, it was like eating cotton candy. It was just great. And um, I was amazing to see the willingness of almost the entire class just to admit, we're doing this all wrong. And, you know, praise God, because God's very specific about how he wants to shepherd and lead people. And most of the time we ignore that. And so they were very open to that. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Father, we do want to acknowledge you as our perfect king, and we want to acknowledge that we depend upon you and that you are our all in all and that we need you. We were made to worship you, so we want to start our time of prayer today worshiping you and to saying you are perfect in every way. Father, you are always working for our good. You're working to develop us, to change us into the image of your son, and we pray that you would give us a heart to want that help. Help us to be open to change and to learn and have a desire to obey all things that you've provided for us. Father, we realize that you are our great provider, and you are providing for all of our needs. And, and certainly I want to thank you for providing me the opportunity to go to Uganda and specifically to help a small portion of that city and, and to teach what your word says about leadership. Thank you for that. And Father, I certainly want to ask your help in providing us a permanent home. Father, better teaching space, better opportunities to minister throughout the week and on Sunday. Just in your timing, we know you're at work, and we just say we want to exercise faith by knowing that you will provide our needs, and, and we just ask you to do that. Father, I, I pray for Sherry Ann Neds and just pray that as she studies and as she works, that you'll continue to develop in her the character that you want to develop, help her to uh, determine the life mission that you've called her, and that she would see the work that she's preparing for in school to, to be preparing her for life as wor of work as worship. And Father, we thank you so much for Hannah Bender. We thank you for the work that she's doing and even this transition, the fact that she is equipping herself to better minister to people and to serve you out of a heart of love. And we want to thank you for that. We want to ask that you give her wisdom, that you continue to help her both professionally and in ministry to be able to meet the needs of people and to organize uh, trips, give her a special blessing on each of the trips that she's planning uh, this year. Help her to keep you in the front and center of her life. Father, we thank you for Jeff Davis and the ministry of EMU, and as he is heading off this week on an unplanned trip to, to Uruguay, we just ask your blessing that you would help him um, just to handle all the changes to his schedule that that ensues, and then whatever the need is that you know, we pray that you will be helping him specifically to function as a servant leader and to meet the needs um, of the ministry there in, in um, Uruguay. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for continuing to help us be fruitful and multiply. Help us to make a difference in your kingdom. Help us to be sharing what we know with those that need to know you. Father, help us to be working to change into your image. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we partake in the Lord's Supper, I want us to focus and consider on a facet of the gospel to prepare our hearts for this time together. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, 
the Apostle Paul wrote, For there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. As key doctrine to the Christian faith is here found in this very simple and clear verse. It first reminds us, um, by assumption really, by implication, that, that mankind needs a mediator. You and I need a mediator before God. But also there's another point that is very clear in this verse, and that is the exclusivity of the one who mediates. Not anyone can be a mediator for mankind before God. Let's look at both of these realities in tandem very briefly before we observe the Lord's table this morning. Back in the Garden of Eden, the Bible tells us that God walked with Adam and Eve. Think of the sweet communion they must have enjoyed in the cool of the garden. But when sin entered the world through Adam, mankind no longer could commune with God. They were not right with God. In the Old Testament, the priests offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. And only once a year, the high priest could go in and the most holy place in the presence of God in the tabernacle. But priests still sinned. Priests still died. And only priests could go into the presence of God. But there was a promised, a better priest. A priest who would be a sinless man that could actually represent mankind before a holy God. There is a man who could bring salvation to mankind, who could plead for the forgiveness and the mercy of God on behalf of his righteous life. Man, uh, the only, no, no man can do this fully or perfectly in the past. And no human or institution can do this today. We can only have this mediation through Christ. And there's one mediator between, Christ, between God and man, and that man is Christ Jesus. And this morning, we celebrate that reality that we are coming before the Lord and we can only come because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It was his body that was broken so that we might have forgiveness of our sins. And so if you're here today and you are trusting that Jesus is the one and the only way and the only way that you could relate to God, commune with God, not your actions, not your church going, not your church giving, then come. There's an invitation for you to come and dine this morning. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's necessary to know that this, this bread, this juice, is symbolic of Christ's body that was broken on the cross and his blood that was spilled for us. Taking this bread, drinking this juice, doesn't make one right with God. But rather, this is for the obedient Christian to meditate on the glorious realities of the finished work of Jesus Christ.
And so this meal is not also because of these massive realities that we are considering this morning that I'm sharing very briefly. This is not to be partaken unadvisedly or flippantly, but rather we are to examine our own hearts as Paul warned the Corinthian believers. The manner in which one comes, and Paul says that we must uh, examine ourselves. So before we break the bread and drink the cup in just a moment, I want us to give us a few moments of individual reflection, examination, and time for prayer with your Lord. And the piano is going to play one stanza of Come Thou Fount as you pray and examine your own heart. So for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are trusting in the sacrificial death of Christ for your salvation, you are welcome to participate. I invite you to grab the bread and the juice that is in this little cup. Feel free to peel off the top layer of the bread. And I'm going to ask John Yerzinski to come, and he is going to give thanks for the body of Christ that was broken on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the time here, even just to take a few minutes and, and pause and reflect on the great sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Uh, Lord, you call us to uh, look back and remember those things uh, during these times. So God, we do thank you for um, sending Jesus uh, to be that sacrifice for us that, uh, to cover, the, to cover the, the penalty that we couldn't pay. Lord, thank you for everything that uh, went into that to uh, allow us to uh, spend eternity with you. Lord, we're so grateful for that. And I pray that uh, as we uh, reflect these few minutes here, we would realign ourselves with you and um, uh, um, just pause and reflect on, on those things. We love you, Lord, and thank you for all you do for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. I'm going to ask Kirk Henserling to come and give thanks for the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilt for you and I. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the communion table, and we thank you for the opportunity to pause and to remember what you did for us through your blood, through the blood that was spilled for the remission of our sins. 
Lord, thank you for uh, the perfect once and for all sacrifice that you made for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not to partake in this communion casually, but to revive in us the joy of our salvation through you. It's in your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen. And Christ took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up and lead us in that gospel hymn, Come Thou Fount. During the song, I'm going to ask the children to be dismissed. They can go to their sermon time with Pastor Garrett. And at the end of the service, uh, there will be some to come and pick up the cups so you can just leave them on the floor and they will come and grab them at the end of the service. All right, why don't you guys join me as we sing Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing.
gathered together to worship your hearts really were encouraged and blessed by not just what we sang together and what we read together from the scripture and what we heard of God's good work through the lives of those that God has placed here on our body but especially as we took the table together this morning what a what a wonderful time what a wonderful privilege for that incredible meal for us the Lord prepared I've, I've often thought you know as we think about that table, I go back to Psalm 23, you have prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And that table was certainly one that the Lord himself prepared and experienced, and now we get the privilege of doing that. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm excited about what God's doing in our church. Uh, normally, today would be Vision Sunday. And so I was busy at work uh, throughout the last couple of weeks, uh, just praying, talking with the elders about the vision for uh, 2024. We always take time to look back on what God put in front of us in the previous year and, and celebrate the ways in which God accomplished that in uh, so many marvelous uh, opportunities and, and displays of His grace. And uh, as I was doing Vision 2024, looking back on Vision 2023, it was just stunning to see again the good hand of God and His providence. Uh, but over the last month, actually, maybe a little more than a month, there has been some exciting developments that uh, initially we were just sort of looking at, and those have really started to come online. And so... Our elders have been involved in these discussions, and uh, on Wednesday they said, Pastor, we think you should put Vision 2024 off a few Sundays, and uh, so we're going to do that. I always try to listen to the elders. You should listen to the elders of the church God puts you under, and even though I stand up here and preach and am one of the elders, I'm first and foremost a member. And so when the elders gave that counsel, I felt that I needed to uh, do that. And uh, I am excited and prayerful. Uh, we don't tell you everything that happens at Palmetto Baptist. And one of the reasons is we don't want to be a leadership team that sort of talks about something that never develops. Uh, and we're going to do this now. And then and, and two weeks later, no, 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 we're doing that. So we have been very, very careful and very, very cautious to say much publicly about opportunities and explorations and things that God uh, sometimes brings across our path. Uh, and we believe that in the next uh, four weeks or so, uh, we will have something to say to the congregation. And that's when I intend to do Vision 2024. So I thought to myself, well, maybe we should go back to our good friend, Daniel. Uh, we met Daniel in the fall of last year. The elders believed that it would be good for us to journey through the book of Daniel, and I want to uh, talk a little bit about why uh, we are, are doing that. 
but before we do that, can I just, um, before I jump into uh, our, our friend Daniel and the book that he wrote for us, let me introduce another one of our ministry friends that, that God has chosen to bring here with us this morning, and that is uh, Richard and Wendy Vargas. Richard, I think you're, where are you? I, I saw you back there. Richard, why don't you just stand up for a minute? We don't normally embarrass people like this, but since you're such a good friend, I wanted to do this and embarrass you. Richard is the uh, executive director of the IFCA, and that is a group of uh, churches, I think, what about 1,200 churches, Richard? 1,200 members and uh, all across the country, and uh, Richard has been uh, just a humble servant and a very effective leader of that group, and uh, he is in town and has some ministry opportunities that he's doing, and uh, we were so glad that he could be here, and I wanted you to meet him. As I open in prayer here as we go to the Word, I want to pray for the IFCA. I want to pray for this group of churches that the Lord would bless them and further their ministry and, uh, and give good success to the work of their hands. And so let's do that together, shall we? Lord, as we come now to your word and as we sit under it, we ask, Lord, that you would help us. We know that we cannot, apart from your enablement and your enlightenment, even understand what is written in ways that would be profitable to us. Lord, we want to do more than just an academic exercise this morning. We, we want to come and sit under the beauty and the authority of your word and receive the blessing and the work of it in our lives. Lord, I do thank you for Richard and Wendy. What a precious couple and what dear servants they are of your kingdom. Lord, as they lead this body of churches and as they serve the pastors that make uh, up this fellowship, Lord, I pray that you would give to them a success. May the work of their hand be the work of your hand. Lord, may churches uh, be blessed by, by their ministry. May the gospel be advanced. May the word be proclaimed. May churches be strengthened because of this precious couple. And we ask that your good hand of blessing would be on them. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to turn to Daniel chapter 10. And uh, we are going to reconnect with someone that we met last fall. Now, you probably have been reading the book of Daniel off and on throughout your life. And uh, if you're like me, Daniel has been one of those fascinating books that you don't quite know what to do with. The first part of that book is awesome. And you start reading that first part of the book, and it gets real evident that there are stories that uh, or accounts, historical narratives that are, are woven together in some way to communicate a message. And, and that's the part of Daniel that you love. And then you get into the second half of the book and you go from things that are happening in the court of Nebuchadnezzar to things that are happening in a very different court, before a very different throne, before a very different king. You are literally taken into the throne room of heaven and much of what happens in the second half of the book of Daniel is happening in that throne room. And you are trying to figure out what is being said, why it is being said, and what it actually means. And so as we kind of look at the book of Daniel, I think that is a helpful way to at least reconnect. Daniel is like one of those friends 
that sometimes comes into our life. And no matter how long you've been apart, when you come together, you sort of pick up the conversation and you pick up life right where you left off. And so as I started to reconnect with the material that we had been looking at back in October before God's providence uh, brought a, a wonderful pause in this journey, I came back and it was just like I slid into the car and we, we took off and Daniel started talking and it was like we had never ever had a pause. And I hope that's your experience as, um, as we come back to this wonderful series uh, on the book of Daniel. And to help you have that experience, what I want to do today and next Sunday is I want to put a bridge in place so that we can go over the bridge and connect easily with what we have been hearing and thinking about in the book of Daniel. There are three main characters in the book. You have a very powerful, arrogant, pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. You have a faithful, praying prophet named Daniel. And you have a silent but sovereign God named Yahweh. And those three characters drive the story and drive the main message of the book forward. Daniel was a servant of God who was genuinely humble. He was amazingly bold. He was remarkably gracious. I mean, think about those descriptions. Genuinely humble, amazingly bold, remarkably gracious, unusually wise, and consistently faithful. And he spent his entire life in the court of pagan kings, representing the kingdom of God to the kingdoms of the world. And all of those qualities came into being. When we first started the series, the elders and I really felt it was important for us to come to this book at this moment in our church's life. And there are reasons for the journey. And I want to review those so that you understand and are on the same page as us as we come every Sunday. We live in uncertain times. This is the first reason for the journey. We live in uncertain times, and we need to learn to live confidently and joyfully for God in the face of an uncertain future. And that is exactly what we find going on in the life of Daniel and the three friends that were doing life with him in the first part of the book. They lived in uncertain times. The second reason that we feel is important for us to go on this journey together is that we live in secular and and immoral times. We are surrounded by a culture that is secular and immoral, and it is encroaching more and more into the life and into the body of Christ. And as we live in that culture, we must speak truth and we must defend righteousness courageously and graciously. And Daniel does this remarkably well. We live in spiritually dark times and we are called to display the beauty of the gospel and the light of the gospel to people who are desperately in need. And as we make our way through these chapters This is exactly what Daniel does over and over and over and over again. And all along the way, there are little comments that the writer of this book places strategically 
where one of the pagan characters in the book actually articulates truth about God. Nebuchadnezzar has one of the most stunning testimonies about the, 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 the sovereignty of God, the glory of God, the uniqueness of God that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. Where did he get that? Somebody was a light in his presence, and it was Daniel. And finally, we live in desperate and confusing times, and as we live in those desperate and confusing times, we must strive to live humble, prayerful, Bible-shaped lives that please God, that advance His purposes, and that display His power. And we need to do that for the glory of God, but we also need to do it for the good of the nations. And that's what we see here in the book of Daniel. Now, that brings us to a question that I want us to consider this morning, and that is this. What kind of book did Daniel write? What kind of book did Daniel write? And you and I might look at a question like that and have an immediate answer. And the immediate answer I came to when I looked at that question was he wrote a book of prophecy. He he wrote a book filled with prophecies that were intended to assure God's people about their future. And so there is a sense in which you can look at the book of Daniel, and that's actually true. Daniel did write a book, and the book does have prophecies, and those prophecies do assure God's people about the future, particularly the future that God has promised. And so that's not a bad description, but it's not a complete description. As I began thinking about this and started looking at some books that uh, speak to the purpose of Daniel, I came across this word called apocalyptic. How many of you have ever heard of that word? That's a wonderful word that most of us use, but we don't really know what exactly it means. That was apocalyptic. That was an apocalyptic moment. And, and really, what apocalyptic literature is in the Scripture, it is, it is literature that was written to people who were living in a very hostile moment where where all of the surrounding power around them was pointed to them and somebody wrote something that was designed to encourage them and strengthen them and they wrote it in such a way that the hostile powers didn't really know what was being said. And Daniel certainly has apocalyptic sections like that where all of a sudden There are things being said that if you're not an insider, you don't really understand. If you are not part of the nation of Israel receiving this part of the book, you're not really going to understand it. And that part of the book is designed for you, and it is a message from God, and the point of that message is to encourage you and to strengthen you so that you can endure another day under those hostile powers and in that very difficult environment. And so Daniel is prophetic, and Daniel is apocalyptic. But, but the real reason that we have the book of Daniel, and if I were to sum the book of Daniel up in one word, it is this. It is wisdom. Daniel is actually a wisdom book. Daniel is presented to you all through the book as the wisest man in Babylon. People around him are going to marvel at his unusual wisdom. And as you get into the book, it is really clear that Daniel got this wisdom somewhere. And the somewhere 
that he got the wisdom from was from heaven. He got wisdom from above. God is giving to Daniel insight and understanding that nobody else has about things that are impossible to figure out on the human level. And so as we come to the book of Daniel, I want us to see first and foremost before we run to the prophetic side of it or before we seek out the apocalyptic side of it, I want us to understand first and foremost when God gave us the book of Daniel, he gave us a wisdom book. And we're going to need that wisdom as we navigate the dark places and the hard spaces of life that you and I live in as we continue to live in the kingdoms of the world and we are called to live in those kingdoms as representatives of the kingdom of heaven. And so we need this wisdom. Now, today what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to open up your Bible and we're going to read a text and then I want us to take a little journey through the first half of the book. I want, I want you to see the artful design and the intentional structure of the book that functions as wisdom for us so that we don't miss the wisdom that God built into the structure of the book. Sometimes when you are traveling, you might find yourself uh, looking at uh, a beautiful cathedral or you might find yourself looking at uh, an, an, an amazing building and you don't exactly know why you feel the way you feel about the building but you just know as you look at that building that this is immense. This is astonishing. This is stunning. And when somebody says to you, did you go to this cathedral or did you go to this? Did you go to Westminster Abbey? And, and you might say, well, yes, I did. And they might ask you, well, what, what struck you about that? And you might come back with words like, it was awesome, it was stupendous, it was amazing, it was stunning. And when somebody says, okay, why, you may not know exactly how to answer that question. And when we look at a book like Daniel, and we see the beauty of Daniel, and we marvel at the incredible wisdom that is in Daniel, sometimes we need to look a little bit deeper and marvel at how that wisdom is actually built into the book. And if you are standing next to the architect of that cathedral or you're standing next to somebody who knows a lot about the design of Westminster Abbey, they start talking to you and they say, well, let me show you why they built it that way. Look up there. Do you see that up there? And the next thing you know, the whole building didn't change in your mind. It just got even more awesome. And that's what I think Daniel is doing as he writes this book. Let me give you some examples of this. The book is arranged around nine important dates. And as you read the book, you don't really think about the dates because they're just buried in the text. There are nine important dates that show up in the 12 chapters that make up these books. These dates are mentioned in chapter 1. They are mentioned in chapter 2, in chapter 7, in chapter 8, in chapter 9, in chapter 10, and in chapter 11. And these dates are not accidental. These dates are actually in the book to help you understand that whoever is writing this book and giving you wisdom has been living out that wisdom under four major kings, at least, representing three specific kingdoms. 
And you're going to see this individual living in those kingdoms for his entire life. You meet Daniel at the beginning of chapter 1, and he's a young man, and you find him at the end of the book, and he's an old man. The entire book is the story of wisdom that somebody actually lived out in the different kingdoms under different rulers of the world, and he did so with success for his entire life. And the reason that's important is we need to be able to trust this wisdom. We need to know that this wisdom is actually wise. And so those dates function that way. This book is intentionally written in two languages. The first half of the book is written in the global language of the day. It's written in a language called Aramaic. If you lived in Daniel's day, everybody, virtually everybody on the planet could speak Aramaic. Certainly all the people that were living in Babylon and later in Medio Persia could speak Aramaic. The other half of the book is written in a language that was very unusual and very unique, and it was pretty much limited to a particular group of people on the planet who were Israelites. It was the language of God's people. And so why would you write a book like that? Why would you write a book in two languages? It's interesting that the part of the book, the Aramaic portion of the book, was written to the Gentile nations, the ones that God is using to discipline his people for their sins. Israel is in Babylon because of their sins. And so here is a book that was written, and part of the book is written in Aramaic, and and the intention is, this is speaking about things that are happening in the Gentile nation that God is using to discipline his people. And then there's a whole section that's sort of private. This private section is God's communication to that people that nation that's under discipline, and it's like God calls them together, God gathers them up, and he says to them, I'm going to speak to you, and this is between us, and I want to tell you about that. I want you to understand that what is happening over there and what is happening to you over there isn't the whole story. And so I want to give you insight into the kingdoms of the world And I want to do it in a way that is going to encourage you and strengthen you and assure you that the promises I made to Abraham and the promises I made to Isaac and the promises I made to Jacob and the promises I made to David, all of those promises have not at all been derailed by any of the foolishness that brought you here. And so there's a section of the book that is written about the Gentile nations, and we're going to find that there is a wisdom for God's people as they live in those nations. And then there's sort of a private section starting in chapter 8, and that section goes all the way to the end of the book, and that's God communicating special information for His people about their future. I never saw that. I mean, I've been reading Daniel my entire life since I was a kid. And when I started really looking at Daniel about a year ago as we started talking about this series, I began trying to wrestle through why the the two languages in the book, and I never made those connections. And it may be that you haven't either. And so I, I want us to make sure that we don't make that same mistake. We don't just assume, oh, 
I don't know why it's in two languages. It's in one language in my Bible, and so it really doesn't matter. It's a very important distinction. You know, God does do this. In Psalm 1, he speaks to the wisdom that a, a, a follower of Yahweh needs to survive and to walk under the blessing of God. And in Psalm 2, he speaks to the nations. And that's exactly what we see here in the book of Daniel. Daniel is a book in which God gives wisdom to his people, and then he speaks to the nations. Now, the first half of the book is arranged around two visions. So the first half of the book is chapter 1 and chapter 7. And chapter 1 is sort of like an introduction of how Daniel and Israel got to Babylon. And then the story really picks up in chapter 2. And chapter 2 is the story of a vision that comes to a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel is the one who interprets that dream. And then we go for a number of chapters. You know, we, we read about things in 3, 4, 5, and 6. And then Daniel has a dream. He has a vision in chapter 7. So there's a vision in chapter 2. And there's a vision in chapter 7, and those two visions are virtually identical. It's the same dream. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar gets the dream, and Daniel does the interpreting. In chapter 7, Daniel gets the dream, and somebody else has to do the interpreting. And so here's the question. Why do we have the same dream repeated? And why does the first time the dream come to a pagan king and Daniel gets to do the interpreting and now there is the same dream, the same vision, and this time it's to Daniel, but he doesn't seem to know what's going on. And it's very troubling to him. And so you have this dream about kingdoms and it sort of frames up the whole section. So the section we're going to look at today is that section. And I'm going to entitle that section, Wisdom for the Nations. Wisdom for the world. And we know that because we have these two dreams that literally frame up the kingdoms of the world, and we're going to find out some things about those kingdoms. The second half of the book, which we'll get to next week, is actually framed up around four visions. And those visions are all about God's future for Israel and those kingdoms that we're talking about in the first half of the book. So this is a very, very interesting way in which the book is structured. And so what do we do with the first half of the book? How do we understand that book? And so let me give you this morning some very simple ways about how to understand that part of, of Daniel. If we could sum up the wisdom that God gives to the nations. If you ask Daniel, Daniel, what is it God wants the nations to know? Here is what Daniel would say. Here's what God wants the nations to know. God rules. God is sovereign. And you can see that all throughout the book. This is uh, what, what, what is going on in these seven chapters it is the most important, if not the central message of the book, is, is this reality. God is sovereign, and he rules over the affairs of his people, and he rules over the affairs of the nations that he has placed over them temporarily. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing. 
Nothing out happens outside of his providence. Nothing can thwart his sovereign design. Th this is what Isaiah meant when he reports God's own words in Isaiah 46. Let me, let me read Isaiah 46, 8 through 10 to you. Remember this, God says, and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you who transgress. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, and here's the part I want you to hear. This is what God said, and this is what Isaiah reported. God said, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. And Daniel says, if you want to know what God wants the nations to know, it is this, God rules. Now, when we get into the second half of the book, here's, here's what God wants his people to know. God wants his people to know my kingdom matters more. He wants the kingdoms of the world to know I rule, heaven rules, God rules, and he wants his people to know, listen, as you see all of these kingdoms rise and fall and rise and fall, don't for a minute think that they are the kingdoms I have in mind. There is a kingdom that matters more. And that's the whole point to the second half of the book. So God rules and his kingdom matters more. Now, those two ideas are all through the book, but they come front and center in different parts of the book. And the front and center part of the first half of the book is all about God's sovereignty, God's rule. This is a massive word of wisdom from God to the nations. And so let me show it to you in the first half of the book. The first place we see it is in chapter 1. And what we discover is that God is orchestrating the entire human history in which his people are called to live. God is saying to the nations, you need to know, if you want wisdom, you need to know that I rule. I'm sovereign. And the first thing that you find in chapter 1, right away in verse 1 and 2, is that God is orchestrating everything that happens. And his people are where they are and positioned where they are because he rules. Notice how he says this in chapter 1. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Here's God's people. Here's their king. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There's a whole history relating to the rise of Babylon and the fall of Assyria and the conflict between Egypt and the Pharaoh aligning himself with the, the remnants of Assyria to try to put down Babylon before it comes up. There's a whole history behind this verse. And you wonder, well, who's doing all that? Who, who's the one orchestrating the tumbling down of the Assyrian nation? Who's the one who's moving in the heart of these Babylonian monarchs, who's the heart, who's the one stirring up the heart of Pharaoh? And, and who's the one doing all of this? And, and, and if you just read those history books and you just think about those events, God never appears. God never appears. But you read God's history, and this is what you discover. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and the Lord 
gave some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Daniel is going to live his entire life living in a pagan nation that God raised up. God raised up Babylon. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to discipline his people. It was God behind all of this. Nebuchadnezzar is going to burn their beloved city. He's going to destroy their sacred temple. He's going to remove the vast majority of people from Israel to Babylon. And people like Daniel are going to spend their entire life there. And just so you and I don't for a moment think that it was the might and the power and the brilliance of Nebuchadnezzar that accomplished all of this, we have verse 1 and verse 2 in our Bible to remind us that all of the human history in which God's people are called to live is orchestrated and governed by God. God rules. God wants the nations to know, and he wants you and I to know that he doesn't just orchestrate human history. He controls the boundaries, and he shapes the destinies of the powerful nations on the earth. And that's what we were talking about, about these two visions. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 contain similar visions that depict an image that is designed to represent human governments throughout the ages until the coming of an anointed, appointed champion who will establish a kingdom that will never end. All of the governments that you see in chapter 2 and that are described in different ways in chapter 8, all of those governments ended. Babylon ended. Medio persia ended. Greece ended. Rome ended. And all of the governments from then till now have risen and fallen, and many of them have ended. But there is a kingdom that is coming. It belongs to someone who stands in chapter 7 and receives it from someone sitting on a throne called the Ancient of Days. And when that kingdom arrives, it will never end. That's a stunning revelation. That is a stunning word of wisdom. God controls the boundaries and he shapes the destinies of the powerful nations. In chapter 2, the vision is given to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel interprets. And what you discover in chapter 2 is that there are nations that are being established by God and they are decreasing in their worth. The first nation mentioned is Babylon. It's Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold. And then the second nation is represented on that image by silver. And then you go down to bronze. And then you go down to iron. And then at the very bottom, there is clay. These nations are diminishing in their worth. But in chapter 8, you see the same nations. And while they're diminishing in their worth, in chapter 8, they are increasing in their hostility and in their their moral depravity. And they are depicted not by valuable metals in chapter 8. They are depicted as ravenous beasts. The head of gold is now a lion. The kingdom of silver is a ravenous bear that is just killed and is eating his prey. The next one is a leopard. And the final one is a fearsome dragon. 
that is seeking to devour. And so while the kingdoms are diminishing in in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, while they're diminishing in worth, in, in Daniel's vision, which is so troubling to him and so difficult for him, while they're diminishing in worth, they are increasing in their hostility. They are increasing in their moral depravity. They are increasing in every way that opposes God and that opposes his people. And Daniel's like, I don't know what to do with this. I am shocked. I am stunned. I am left without breath. And so God controls the boundaries and shapes the destinies of the nations that rule the world. The fourth of those kingdoms morph into an extended metaphor of all the kingdoms that will exist from the time Messiah first appears until he comes to receive the kingdom that is promised to him in chapter 7. And we're going to see all of this unfold. There is a kingdom that is even more ancient than anything you see in the visions. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. And by the time we get down to the toes of clay, they represent all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus stood on a mountain and Satan offered him all of those kingdoms. But there is a kingdom that is very different. It is far more valuable. It is not morally depraved. It is a kingdom that is marked by righteousness. It is a kingdom that is flavored by peace. And that kingdom is going to literally rule all of the kingdoms that you see in vision 2, in chapter 2, and in chapter 8, or chapter 7 rather. This kingdom that is coming is going to rule over all of those kingdoms. And that king who rules that kingdom is going to mediate blessing to the nations. That is why this half of the book is in Aramaic. And that is why it is so encouraging if you know what to look for. There is long-intended blessing to the nations. He preserves the lives and he elevates the honor of his faithful servants while they live in those kingdoms. The kingdom of gold, the kingdom of silver, the kingdom of bronze, the kingdom of iron, the kingdoms of clay, these kingdoms that are hostile, they're like a lion, they're like a bear, they're like a leopard, they're like a dragon. How in the world are God's people going to survive until this kingdom comes that we keep hearing about? We keep hearing about this kingdom from heaven that's coming, and Matthew says, hey, you need to align with that kingdom. It needs to be your chief focus. It needs to be your primary concern in life. And and in the meantime, we've got to deal with these kingdoms that we live in. What are we supposed to do with a lion and a bear and a leopard and, and, and a dragon? What do we do as God's people living in those kingdoms? And God says, let me just tell you. Just let, me, let me give you a word of wisdom about that. God can preserve the lives of his servants and he can elevate the honor of his name through them. And, and that's why you have, after chapter 2 and before chapter 7, you have two chapters that talk about God's servants being delivered from impossible circumstances. In chapter 3, you have three servants who refuse to bow down to an image and they are cast into a furnace. And by the end of that experience, Nebuchadnezzar is not only honoring their God, he is promoting them. And in chapter 6, you have another story of deliverance. You have another servant named Daniel who refuses to pray to anybody except God. 
And he gets cast into a den of lions for that. And by the time that story is over, an entirely different king in an entirely different kingdom is celebrating God and he's promoting God's servant to the highest position in the land. Can God protect you? Can God protect me in these kingdoms that we live in? No matter how hostile they are, no matter how immoral they are, no matter how pagan they are, as we live in those kingdoms, we have two stories in the book of Daniel that are there to remind us that God knows, God cares, and God preserves if we will follow the wisdom. And let me just say one final thing, and we'll close. God controls all of the affairs in which his servants live. God is raising up and controlling the character and the destiny of all the nations in which we live. He preserves the life and elevates the honor of God's people in those nations. But here's the final thing I want you to see, and then we'll close, and that is this. He humbles proud and arrogant kings. He humbles the kings of the earth. Psalm 2 says this, why do the nations rage? And and God gives those nations counsel. He says this, kiss the son, submit to the son. Chapter 2, a vision. Chapter 7, a vision. It's like a parenthesis, a vision of the nations. Chapter 3, chapter 6, the story of how God preserves his servants in those nations. And then in chapter 4 and chapter 5, you see the story, the account of two of those pagan kings who God humbles. In chapter 4, God humbles mighty Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the dream and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, let me just tell you something. This dream that troubled you is about you. You've elevated yourself. You become proud and arrogant. And I want to give you some counsel. Can I give you some gracious words? And the gracious words that God gives to Nebuchadnezzar are these through Daniel. You need to repent. Daniel chapter 4, listen to the repentance that God gave words to in the mouth of Daniel. Daniel 4.27, Daniel says to the king, now Daniel's been serving this king for years. He's got, he's got cred with the king. And, and so he looks at the king after he gives him the incredible, difficult news of God's wrath about to be poured on his head. He says, therefore, O king, and this is what he says, let my counsel be accepted by you. Break off your sins. Practice righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, and perhaps there would be a lengthening of your prosperity. A year later, God humbles his king, and for seven seasons, he's out in the fields living like a beast, and then he repents. God grants him repentance, and then Nebuchadnezzar repents, and he's restored. In chapter 5, we read about another king, actually a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar named Belshazzar. And Belshazzar has heard all of the stories of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. He's heard about 
all of the might and all of the power and all of the incredible strength of Nebuchadnezzar. He lives in a palace that Nebuchadnezzar built. He governs a city in the name of his father that Nebuchadnezzar built. And one day in arrogance and pride and iniquity, he takes the temple vessels of the God of Israel that God entrusted to Nebuchadnezzar who brought them over to the land of Shinar in chapter 1 and he breaks out those vessels and he does something that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't even do in his own arrogance and his own pride. He takes the vessels and he uses them in worship to his pagan God. And you know the story. A hand shows up on the wall. And all of a sudden, the party's over. And they call for Daniel. And Daniel says very clearly and graciously to him in chapter 5, verse 22, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. He recounts the history of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And you knew all of this, but you wouldn't humble your heart. But instead, you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. This is the interpretation of what the hand has written. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been found in the balances. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Two visions about the kingdoms of the world. Two stories about how God protects his servants in those kingdoms as they live for his glory. And two stories about how God wants to humble pagan, arrogant kings who lord themselves over their own kingdoms. You say, well, Pastor Sam, that's fascinating. And I'm glad you went through all of that with us. So what? So what? Well, you have a kingdom. It may be a small kingdom, but you have a kingdom. You lord over that kingdom. You do what you want in that kingdom. Everything in that kingdom is oriented to things that matter to you. You have a kingdom, and you rule over that kingdom. And the book of Daniel is saying to you about your kingdom, God wants to humble you so that he can bless you. God wants to humble you so that he can bless you. And here's the question that Daniel would ask you if he stood here this morning and went through all of what we've just said. He would say, in the little kingdom of your life, let's not talk about the big kingdoms of the world. Let's not talk about Babylon. Let's not talk about Medio Persia. Let's not talk about Greece. Before we talk about Rome or before we talk about any other kingdom, let's talk about one little tiny kingdom, and that is the kingdom of you. Let's talk about that kingdom. And here's my question. Daniel would say to us, here's my question. Have you kissed the son? Have you humbled yourself? Have you repented of your own pride and your own arrogance and your own doing things your own way? Nebuchadnezzar is the story of a man who ran his kingdom however he wanted to run it. Whenever he wanted to do it, he did whatever he wanted to do, however he wanted to do it, whenever he wanted to do it. And every once in a while, God punctuated his life, and there were momentary moments in his life where he gave these, these acknowledgments to God. 
Oh, yeah, there's a God in heaven. Oh, yeah, Daniel's a servant. Oh, he's really good at interpreting dreams. But over and over and over again, Nebuchadnezzar ran his own kingdom however he wanted to run it, whenever he wanted to run it, and every once in a while, he gave God an accolade. He gave God a shout-out. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that describe your kingdom? Is that how you run your life? I hate to say this, but sometimes that's how I've run my life. We have a little kingdom. It's the kingdom of me. It's the kingdom of you. And in that little kingdom, we do whatever we want to do, however we want to do it. And God shows up when we need him. God shows up and we give him an accolade or we give him a little shout out and then we keep running. And, and then there comes a point where God in love does to us what he did to Nebuchadnezzar and he humbles us. He humbles us. He puts us in a place where our kingdom is no more. And we have to make a decision. Are we going to repent and let God have the throne? Or are we going to do what Belshazzar did? Hearing all of this, knowing all of this, Belshazzar said, I don't really care. This is still my kingdom. And I'm going to take these vessels that belong to God, and I'm going to do whatever I want. And God says, Belshazzar, you knew the story of your grand. You know, you know the truth. You know what I did to Nebuchadnezzar. You know all about his repentance. You live in the kingdom that was transformed by that repentance. And Belshazzar said, I'm going to do what I want to do, no matter what. You know, it's shocking, I think, to, to us, and, and, and it should be to you as elders, is how many times in, in churches even like this, we run into people who do whatever they want to do. It doesn't matter what the elders say. It doesn't matter what scripture comes to bear. It doesn't matter what line of biblical articulation is given. People in churches like this, sometimes do what they want to do, and they pick a Belshazzar response. Is it any surprise that God responds to them and brings the devastation that comes when we despise the wisdom? And that's why Daniel is so important to us. As we live in the kingdoms of the world, there is a kingdom coming and we're part of that kingdom now, but we still have to live in these hostile kingdoms. And as we live in the hostile kingdoms, the first kingdom that has to be subdued is ours, yours and mine. So here's my question as we close, and I'll pray. Have you kissed the sun? Father, we do thank you for Daniel. We know this book is a wonderful book. It's artfully designed. It's carefully structured. Lord, we have looked at the first half and marvel at how you put this book together. And in the structure, you've given us wisdom. And we desperately need that wisdom this morning as we think about not just the kingdoms around us, but really the kingdom that is our own little life. Lord, we want that kingdom to be fully surrendered and fully committed. And so, Lord, bring us to that place of humbleness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to close with this last song um, right before we hear from uh, Pastor Ben.
Um, and uh, that's a song I think we're all pretty familiar with, but such a fitting song for today's sermon. Uh, so join me and stand as we sing uh, What a Beautiful Name.
of all that is happening today and upcoming. First of all, I heard from some of the men in our church that they were actually um, really disappointed that the ladies had uh, a woman's ladies' tea. And uh, so the men wanted to have a men t- men's tea. And that is going to happen this uh, um, this Saturday, February 10th, and it's going to be at Top Golf. So we're going to have a men's tea at Top Golf. And um, please make sure that you come. It's $12 a person, so we got to pay for that. But if you could, uh, men, feel free to contact Jonathan West, and he has all the details for that men's tea event. And then March 8th and 9th, we have a marriage retreat planned at Saginaga. You can sign up now. So you can sign that up in the e-news, on the app, um, you can email if you have questions to Kim, but sign up as fast as you can. We'll, this week we'll send out an individual email also promoting that just so you have all the details for that and can sign up very easily uh, for that. And that is um, coming up uh, really shortly. It's going to be a great, um, a great time. So please do that. Uh, sign up as soon as you can so that we can plan. Now, Pastor Sam's been talking about cars and marriage. I have no idea what he's talking about. But we actually did find a marriage conference for him, and uh, it looks like this. So if you want to sign up for that conference, you're welcome to. Um, for everybody else, we have our marriage conference the 8th and 9th, so uh, that's your conference, Pastor Sam. Well, we're going to have our equip hour, uh, and in the back, we've got PBC 101. If you're new here, uh, please, uh, we'd love for you to stay and get to know who we are, and we can also get to know who you are. And uh, so that is happening with Pastor Coco and Pastor Sam in the back. And then there's also our Spanish class uh, that meets with uh, uh, um, Mark Vowles, and I hope you take advantage of that. And then there's going to be our three classes up front today, and we're combining our leadership class and our young marriage class, and that will be right over here. So if you're in Pastor Ken's class, that's who's teaching also the young marrieds. Those are two topics that weave together quite well. So he'll be teaching that class today. And then right here in the middle, it's going to be uh, learning to trust God in the hardest of times with Bruce Meyer. And then my class over here as we continue our study through the Old Testament. We're in First Samuel this morning. College class, young adults, you're over at PBC Maine. I know you have a great time with Bert and Hiro. And, um, and if you are at the end of our equip hour, please continue to help us take down our chairs. Please don't drag them. Um, but we're thankful for all those hands who can help us uh, transition and get everything packed up. 
Well, we're thankful for how God continues to provide. Thank you for giving and obeying the Lord. And uh, we're grateful for your continued ministry and worship in this way. Will you please stand with me as we close our service?